At the end of this week, when I'm recording this, I had posted an announcement to social media about pushing our one-year anniversary announcements back to today. I'll get to those soon, and I'm very excited to talk about them, but I just wanted to take a moment to say this. I love this show and the discussions I've been able to have through it, to have a creative outlet to be able to talk about the Star Wars content that I love. With that said, I try my best to not overlook the real struggles going on in the world, whether that be the violent insurrection we saw this week, or the oppression that marginalized groups experience every day of the week. Yes, Outer Rim Reads is a fantastic escape for me, and I hope for you, to have from the world, but ultimately, this is fiction. And there are real issues that deserve our energy and time. And that's why I pushed my announcements back, because there is a time to talk about Star Wars, and sometimes it's simply not the time. So before you continue to listen, I would encourage you to pause the show and take some time to look up charities you could donate to, to reach out to loved ones struggling with the pandemic, with anxiety, with depression, to take time for yourself too. There's a lot going on in the world, and the best we can do before we engage with Star Wars is to play our part to help, to be there for each other, and to find time to rest. Now on to our one-year anniversary announcements. I do want to thank each and every one of you for listening in and giving your time to this show for the past year. I couldn't have imagined I'd meet so many fantastic people because of the podcast or that I'd have such incredible discussions with you all, whether that's on the show or on social media. So thank you all so, so much for your support. It truly means the world. Speaking of supporting the show, I'm excited to announce a couple of new ways to do so. As of today, we now have merch available on Teespring. So if you head over to teespring.com, you can find the Outer Rim Read Store up, where we have t-shirts, hoodies, stickers, and more. For anyone who remembers a great meme back from the beginning of Season 1, we also have Palpatine tiptoeing through the tulip stickers available, with a fantastic illustration by digital artist and former guest of the show, Chad Fagan. Be sure to grab yourself one of those. Chad did a great job on a fun image. With even more news, I'm thrilled to announce we now have a Patreon for Outer Rim Reads. If you head over to patreon.com slash Outer Rim Reads, you'll find five different tiers of support with cool benefits like a patron-only Discord server, episode bloopers, monthly live streams, and even an exclusive monthly show called Spotchka Sessions, where I pretty much continue the cantina scenes for my outros and chat about Star Wars movies, shows, comics, and more. So if you're interested in supporting Outer Rim Reads and want to check out those sweet rewards, be sure to head on over to patreon.com slash Outer Rim Reads. I've also decided to donate $1 for every patron we have at the beginning of each month to charity. So if we've got 50 patrons, that's $50 I'll donate at the beginning of each month to a charity or cause in need. I'm really excited to take this next step for the show, and I can't wait to better the quality of the podcast in any way that I can through your generous support. And I'll post links to our Teespring store, our Patreon, as well as Chad's work in the episode description. Finally, I'm excited to announce a new show coming to your ears in January 2022. This will be hosted by myself and Outer Rim Reads editor Connor Floyd, and will be geared towards fans of The Clone Wars and Star Wars Rebels. We're looking for it to be something both diehard and casual fans can enjoy, so if you're interested in The Clone Wars or Rebels, or would like to check them out, stay tuned for our new show airing in January 2022. Now for some Search Your Readings. Last week's question was, 
Obi-Wan is very indignant at his master having struck a deal with Pax and Rahara, specifically because they are jewel thieves. Although Qui-Gon reminds him the two are more than just thieves, Obi-Wan remains somewhat frustrated. Is Obi-Wan's qualm here specific to his personal growth and development, or do you think his issue here reveals some larger truths about the mentality of the Jedi Order? And we have a couple of answers from friends on Twitter. Chad says, quote, I think he has a personal growth issue to deal with because he has much faith in the Elder Jedi aside from Qui-Gon. And Sean answers, quote, I think the issue lies with both Jedi and ourselves, the reader slash Star Wars fans. The galaxy is hardly ever black and white. Yes, Obi-Wan is right to think Jedi shouldn't ally with thieves, but if you compare the net evil of blowing stuff up and stealing a few pebbles, the choice is easy. Thank you both so much for these answers, and be sure to listen in for our discussion question at the end of this episode. Again, thank you all so much for helping make this past year as incredible as it's been. I'm excited to see what this next one has in wait. And without further ado, let's get into episode 27 of Outer Rim Reads. Hello there, listeners, and welcome to episode 27 of Outer Rim Reads, a podcast that journeys chapter by chapter through Star Wars novels across the canon. My name is Andrew Geha, and I'm your host along this journey. In this episode, we will be discussing chapters 14, 15, and a flashback section of Master and Apprentice, and I'm joined today by Greg Cass, also known on Twitter as IonCanon. Greg, how are you doing? Thank you so much for being on the show today. Oh, you're absolutely welcome. I'm, I'm really excited to have a conversation about such a great book and with such a good host. Um, I'm honored to be here. <laughs> I appreciate it. Uh, I had first heard uh, you uh, on a podcast when I think you came on the Death Star Dispatch podcast a while back and you had mentioned to Fred there that you were big into Star Wars books. And as soon as I heard that, I was like, I'm liking this conversation. I like what he just said right there. I want him on the show. So I'm <laughs> glad to have you to talk about a, a really great book. <laughs> well, I'm grateful to have the chance to talk about it because I, I read every book and I have basically alienated myself from my friends because they're like, they're not as hot on the new canon and they just can't keep up with everything the way I do. So it's nice to have the opportunity to talk about a, a really good one in the new canon at that. So Yeah, you are in the right place. I will say that. So Speaking about your love of Star Wars books, your love of Star Wars, how about you give the listeners an idea of your background with the Star Wars fandom, like how you got involved, and then specifically with Master and Apprentice? Sure. So I am from the generation of the dark times. So <laughs> I will age myself explicitly and say I was born in 1983. So too young to have really experienced the OT and its glory. Yet by the time I got interested in Star Wars, it felt like the whole project was spinning up just for me. So I was probably about 10. So early 90s when I got interested in Star Wars and it was friends at school. And I had a really good friend named Melissa and, and I was over there one night for a sleepover. And she's like, you got to check out this movie and, and played me the Empire Strikes Back. Nice, good choice. Yeah, and, and actually it took me, I think, three or four years to actually see A New Hope. I had seen Empire and Jedi oh. and then had to backtrack, which Interesting. it was really confusing why the Falcon worked the right way and, you know, <laughs> a couple other things were surprises. And then um, I think it was around uh, when I was in seventh grade, I was on vacation in Orlando. My dad took me just down for like a 
guy's trip. We went to Disney World, nice. and um, he took me into a gift shop, and I saw the uh, the first book in what was the Corellian trilogy at the time. I think it's Ambush at Corellia, and mm. I picked it up. I was like, I didn't know there were more adventures, and then I really <laughs> have have kept up with the Star Wars books ever since. I missed a couple of the like Clone Wars ones. It was right when I was sure. an undergrad, and it wasn't popular to hang out on campus with a <laughs> Clone Wars novelization out, um, and I had school and all that. So, uh, um, so I, there's a little dip there, but I followed it right through. And contrary to what all that might imply, I actually didn't mind when they reset the canon. It only made sense nice. to me. Um, I love those books. I, I still, I recently read Rogue Squadron, and I will probably read them all again now that yeah. we have an announcement. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, and, and I've kept up with all the new canon and read as many comics as I can. Master and Apprentice, I think like a lot of people I've heard this season on your podcast, I read Lost Stars and I said, whatever she writes after this, I will immediately sign yeah. on for. <laughs> um, just amazed by it. And so um, this was one I had really looked forward to as it was approaching. And I, I waited and bought my copy at Celebration Chicago. Now, I believe one of your recent guests, I think it was the Tarkin's top shelf crew got the exclusive yeah. convention edition i will say i could not do that i did not have the patience so uh <laughs> listening to them i was like good good on you that you ran in there first thing one morning because i think they were usually gone by like 905 those mornings that sounds about right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but i i bought my regular edition and i did get it signed by claudia at the convention and got to exchange a few nice words with her and i think I, you know she ran a special thing this summer where you could send a donation to black lives matter and then send her the nice. receipt and she would send you a signed book plate i think i have really? yeah and, and and i think i got like five of them uh, i just uh made sure <laughs> uh i have all uh signatures in all her books because they are a, a special part of the collection that is a nice <laughs> <laughs> a nice addition to your collection <laughs> yes very much so and the only other thing to mention is just i'm a huge kenobi fan so he's my guy yeah. in star wars and has been really since phantom menace came out i think i was a little bit attached to old ben but then it was you and as Obi-Wan yeah. in Phantom Menace that locked me in. And so that was another reason I really looked forward to this. And not to spoil what I want to say in our chapters, but I'll, I'll say <laughs> it's a different version of Kenobi yes. we're getting yes, here. Yes, very different. <laughs> um, but it, it it really fits. And, um, you know, there are a lot of discussions in fandom right now about how characters change over time and whether we accept those changes over time. Yep. <laughs> um, and I think this kind of example of a young Obi-Wan in the mix is, is a good reminder that being the character doesn't mean you have to be the same. It just means you have to honor kind of the core of who they are. Yeah. So. And I think Claudia has, has very much, you know, like you're saying, honored that core of, of Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon as we come to know them. That I was kind of wondering uh, your opinion on this version of, you know, young angsty teen Obi-Wan. <laughs> <laughs> you know, compared to how we know him uh, in the prequels and, and forward. But I'm I'm glad that her work here has your seal of approval on him. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, let's get right into these chapters. We got some good ones ahead of us. This is really where the book, if it, if it hasn't grasped readers by this point, I don't know what's happening. So I'm going to give my summary for chapter 14 and then we can get right at, uh, right discussing. Qui-Gon is woken in the middle of the night by a disturbing dream of the future that took place during Princess Fanry's coronation. Deeply troubled, he seeks advice from Rail. Without much of a warning, Qui-Gon walks in on Rail sleeping with the local bartender, Selby. After she leaves, an uncomfortable exchange ensues between the two Jedi before they talk about Qui-Gon's dream. 
Rail attempts to assure his friend not to worry, but he can sense something else is weighing on Qui-Gon. They begin to talk about their insecurities regarding Nimpiana and Obi-Wan. The two Jedi find common ground when they understand they're both trying to avoid failing the one they're each entrusted with watching over. Before Qui-Gon leaves, a scream from Princess Fanry's room pierces the night. When the Jedi and others arrive at the scene, a trembling Fanry reveals a slicer dart lodged in her window. This chapter begins and ends on really kind of dark notes, chilling notes. Before we get into discussing the details of it, do you have any general thoughts on what we get here in chapter 14? It was jarring as I started to read it and to be kind of entranced in that vision. Mm -hmm. And it pretty quickly comes together with what it is and it becomes obvious. But um, the one thing I'll, I'll say is kind of an overarching thought on the chapter is it really took me back to Phantom Menace Qui-Gon, who says early on that your focus determines your reality. And in mm. this chapter i think qui-gon is having trouble focusing and so his reality is kind of slipping all over the place yeah. um both in the vision and then as he's dealing with uh Rael, um he doesn't have firm footing i think um and it it's interesting to connect to that older wiser qui-gon and think about how maybe this is where he learned that lesson to some degree yeah it's very interesting because in this book so far he has very much been kind of like this you know steadfast sure-footed character but here we see him especially in light of being introduced to the fact that he might very well be in the midst of a prophecy unfolding here we see him start to like you're saying lose this focus a little bit it's very interesting how this translates to him interacting with Rail and others. It's a very interesting time for Qui-Gon internally, uh, you know, him being in the middle of this prophecy here, or so he comes to believe. Let's talk about this vision, this dream he has, where, you know, it starts with him in this cave surrounded by the glowing orange of what we can assume are the, the colon crystals that he was introduced to only a couple chapters back. They turn suddenly red, and then he starts hearing screams around him as he then finds himself in this brilliant white room with gilded walls, a glass ceiling, and blue tiles beneath him. I'm just going to read the, the end of this dream here. And ahead of him, he glimpses the colorless image of a blazing lightsaber superimposed over Princess Fanry's face. The Skykeeper, someone shouts. Qui-Gon looks for whoever spoke, looks for anything he will recognize or understand, but he looks in vain. Another voice shrieks in terror as the lightsaber slashes downward. In the very far distance, he hears somebody say, very calmly, even the Jedi can fall. A very chilling start here, very reminiscent of the vivid, dark dreams that Anakin had in, in the prequels. What are your thoughts on this mm. here? It was a very, like you're saying, a very jarring start to this chapter here, you know, where Qui-Gon's experiencing these vivid dreams, these this vivid vision of whatever seems to be happening at her at Princess Fanery's future coronation. Yeah, so much of the book so far has been based on a fear of change, right? Mm -hmm. Um as he considers Qui-Gon considers joining the council, as he's worried about what this does with his relationship with Obi-Wan, this vision 
adds that fear to me. <laughs> like it, it passes it along, yeah. <laughs> which is now I'm afraid of of what may be changing, uh, along with the delicious dramatic irony of us knowing that great change is coming to the Jedi Order. Um, yeah. And and it will fall. Um, so I think in those moments, it draws me closer to Qui-Gon. And yet it's tantalizing in that I want to understand every single word of that prophecy and of the dream. <laughs> and, and, I, and I don't think you're actually meant to, right? I think Claudia yeah. wants us to kind of revel in, in that fear of, of what change is coming and, and the lack of knowledge of, of what tomorrow will bring in this galaxy. So I think it really works uh, beyond anything else. Yeah, <laughs> kind of like a, a fear of the unknown, which we'd wonder if Qui-Gon is, is kind of comfortable with a certain aspect of the unknown, given how much he loves prophecies and he's enthralled by them. You know, he, he studies the unknown and the things that we can't know for sure very often, but here it's hitting him very personally. You know, he and Obi-Wan have arrived to this tense situation on Pijal. He knows how much Rail cares for Fanery to keep her safe. They've already talked about potential threats to her life. And then this vision here shows at least, you know, if we're, if we're taking it literally, that she might be in mortal danger. So, you know, the stakes here, they've, they've been raised before. This is a very personal raising of the stakes for Qui-Gon and uh, you know we can only wonder how much of it he's going to end up taking literally if he's going to fall prey to the vividness here or if he'll be able to stay on his feet in some way to be cautious about it Mm. but right now we see him kind of falling into this fear of change of the unknown and he unexpectedly at least to, to me when I was reading this he seeks out rail mm. for assurance which given his his previous thoughts on on rail i wouldn't really have expected him the first person to go talk to would be rail but like maybe given their background with dooku especially maybe it can make some sense but let's talk about what qui-gon walks in on here <laughs> where I, I love kind of how it starts because this is now in rail's point of view where he's in his bedroom and he hears qui-gon knocking and He's asking if if he can talk, and I just have this quote here, quote, For those who lived in the Jedi Temple, a communal space, privacy was more a concept than a reality. (laughs) Everos remembered when it had been that way for him, too, so he couldn't be angry when Qui-Gon walked straight in, just (laughs) embarrassed. (laughs) It's just, it's so funny to think of Qui-Gon just, like, knocking, hearing that Rail's there, and just like, all right, just walking in, (laughs) and then he's just like, oh. (laughs) There's a a joke in one of the Marvel movies where they tell Vision that he shouldn't walk through walls, right? He should use the door and knock, and it feels a little like that, that these boundaries like they said don't exist and i'll just hang a lantern on this extension we get of um thinking about the domestic life of jedi within the temple in previous chapters and here again these kind of insights to start to kind of ask some of those questions like how how exactly does it work uh in those moments yeah it i mean i guess i should have saved my language of it's shocking for this moment as well Um, (laughs) certainly not not what i expected of uh you know a jedi and and a jedi as a part of it it really is is curious that he can justify it by throwing the code right back and saying it's okay mm. because I'm not getting attached, which is like the bro version of the Jedi code, I, I suppose. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I think I read his justification as this is what I want to do. This is how I want to live. So I'll come up with a reason. I don't think we're meant to assume that this is a, a healthy form of following the code and it always it always connects with me with his name i mean his name sounds so much like avarice right and when we Mm. we we hear from him he always has that bit of greed that bit of self-motivation to to take care of himself first point (laughs) um and and when we hear about his uh chambers they're very 
not just opulent, but he's got like piles of stuff. Like he's got so many riches that he doesn't know what to do with them. He just throws them in a chair. It sounds like, yeah. you know, most of my rooms in my house and so on. Uh, not so much riches. <laughs> riches but, all around. Yeah, just gold bars. And yeah, no. Uh, casual. But, <laughs> but it's certainly, you know, when we think of the Jedi, I think we think of austerity and a lack of possessions. Obi-Wan mm. in, earlier in the book was ready to like go get a single bag with his few possessions. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then we get this juxtaposition of um you know not just a kind of lustful life but also um kind of greed in that way too and comfort yeah. which um, it, it reminded me you talked so well in your previous episode about um Qui-Gon wondering if they should move the temple out of Coruscant and here we yeah. have a Jedi who's been living on the frontier or uh, in a version of the frontier and it, it has still made him kind of lazy and um too comfortable yeah. uh, very comfortable with the current reality that he's been in uh you know very very much sunken into his comfort zone i do want to talk about his and qui-gon's kind of like clashing views of the code uh, but first i feel like we should talk a little bit about how he treats selby here mm. it's it's a very small moment but i feel like we have to give her some respect because he kind of just dismisses her inwardly and vocally mm. where you know he says uh, he's thinking to himself quote if selby didn't get over it because he does send her away um he said like something like uh, oh she was just leaving right now um and he's thinking to himself quote if selby didn't get over it well this was no more than a matter of convenience for either of them there would be others for her others for him you've already spoken very well about kind of the, his his selfishness his greed <laughs> there where it's like oh there, there'll be others for me but it's not really a great look here with with how he's thinking towards her where i just wasn't very impressed with this almost like an objectifying of her where it's like oh it's, it's just a matter of convenience where it, it, she doesn't he, he's not really looking at her as maybe qui-gon would look at a person with intrinsic a unique value yeah. where it's like oh there'll be others and i just i didn't like it no it, like it's it. totally gross um it, the fact that she's disposable in the grossest sense of the word to him not not in my estimation sure, yes, but yes. <laughs> uh to to the way he treats her uh certainly and there's a class dynamic there too i mean i, I don't mm-hmm. think there's exactly an analog in our society but the fact that this is somebody from the palace with a commoner right feels yeah. medieval and something out of game of thrones or something i guess um yeah <laughs> but uh yeah and and i think when i see him justify it to himself into qui-gon it's all about his own ego right he's like i just i don't want to lose respect from qui-gon even if it loses me selby who cares right um and so just the difference in how he views those two i think says a lot about his character so not great (laughs) um if you listen to Dooku Jedi Lost, at least. I'm not positive about the audiobook of Master and Apprentice. Avarice has a, a very much a Sam Elliott voice. Mm. And I think that kind of makes him feel a little like a frontier cowboy. But I also yeah. connect it to when Sam Elliott played Other Ron on Parks and Recreation. I don't know if you know that show. I've only but... seen the first season. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, but he's kind of a free love hippie character there. And so... I think this character that brings up like this character thinks of it as like a free love thing and that he's respecting her and they're free to do what they want. But certainly I don't think Qui-Gon views it that way. And I I don't think Claudia Gray does either that (laughs) this is, the power dynamics are too much to to really uh, allow. Yeah. And and we really get at least and from even from rail's perspective here he can sense kind of the disappointment just oozing off of qui-gon here especially because qui-gon asks him you know if he's lost his mind and <laughs> it's a very interesting moment from rail here because you're saying that he kind of throws the code back at qui-gon but here he also throws 
maybe a similar situation back at Qui-Gon where he's talking yeah. about this moment from Qui-Gon's past, which I don't know if we have any other material about, <laughs> but he references, um, what did he say here? He references Qui-Gon being in, in a similar situation in his past and Qui-Gon re- responds, quote, there is a difference, Qui-Gon insisted, righteous as ever, between falling in love and simply giving oneself license to do as one pleases. And I was, when I read this, I was like, hold up, does Qui-Gon, ha- <laughs> did he have a love life where it's, um, you know, he mentions this incident on, on Felucia where he, he, where Rail is saying that, quote, I might have broken the letter of the law, but not the spirit. On Felucia, you broke the spirit of, of that law into a dozen pieces. And I'm just wondering here, what happened? Yeah. <laughs> this is like, we know that Obi-Wan had a, you know, a relationship with Satine, but that to maybe that he kind of learned that freedom of emotion i don't know if that's the the way to put it but qui-gon had a similar experience i just i was totally caught off guard here (laughs) with this clapback from rail definitely not the image of qui-gon i think we have from phantom menace (laughs) and to think that he i mean he is you know looser with the the orthodoxy of the jedi order but for sure not in that same regard and and it seems like this does hint at at a wild youth at some point this seems like as good a time as any to float um, I saw somebody on Twitter the other day, or this is like a month ago, demanding a sequel to Master and Apprentice. And I said, no, 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 no. I want a prequel because I, I want I want the Obi-Wan Satine story. Yes. And, and now you're reminding me like we could go to Felucia and see what this is about. See what's going on in Felucia. Yeah. <laughs> I know Rail has spoken about like bachelorette parties on Kashyyyk. I want to know everything that happens before this part. Yeah, yeah. Well, we know Qui-Gon uh, has been to Malastare and seen the pod racing and all that too from the movie, yeah. right? Like, yeah. yeah, there's a lot of material there. And it seems like a great time to keep expanding that our knowledge of Qui-Gon. Oh, for sure. Obi-Wan, but maybe yeah. not for a while with the High Republic content coming in. But right. I hope that it gets revisited <laughs> at some point. <laughs> so they end up shifting the conversation to the reason Qui-Gon came there in the first place, which is about this dream. And it's very interesting. We, we know that Rail had... Uh, you know, being the apprentice of Dooku at one point, he had also been exposed to kind of this interest in prophecies. But it's very interesting here to see his clashing view with Qui-Gon as to how they're viewing this vision, this dream, where Qui-Gon's thinking that it very well might be this glimpse into things that could come to pass, but Rail's thinking that it's ludicrous for Qui-Gon to think that he's prophesying in some way. And, you know, he he tells Qui-Gon that, you know, instead of letting these things eat him alive on the inside, you know, Rail prefers kind of just to to act out of impulse in the moment, to not even worry about these things, because he sees Qui-Gon very much in inner turmoil here. And I thought that this kind of rail saying that he prefers to act immediately on these urges, that it might lend some truth to what happened with Nimpiana, where the big question was that, was his move to the cargo bay a calculated effort to try to stop the pirates and the mutineers from joining forces, or was he just looking for a fight? And here, when he's talking about acting on urges, on impulses, acting immediately, it's kind of telling me, or showing me at least, that it might have been that the situation on the advent with Nim, that he just wanted to dive into the fight here. And they end up talking about Nim, so it's, you know, we'll we'll get more to that. But what did you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think that goes uh, to this kind of cowboy attitude, right? Uh, Kind of shoot from the hip and (laughs) ask questions later, um, which seems to fit with that a lot. And to me, that's really interesting because, again, another defining piece of Qui-Gon is that he listens to the living force, at least when we meet him later. And some of what Rael is saying here seems to be that. Um, He doesn't quite use that same language. Um, It's Mm. more about 
personal instinct than it is sure. about listening to the the cosmic force. But I think you're right that it does start to demonstrate. You start to be able to tell how Rail would tell the story of Nim. Right? We've heard yeah. Qui Gon tell the story, and now we're starting to see. Oh, okay. Like, yeah, he broke the rules of engagement, or or however they phrased it. But he did so for a reason because he felt that it was best to do it this way. But um, yeah, especially as he's coming out of bed, uh, we're <laughs> kind of like, well, but it, it was that selfish too? Like you're saying, was that yeah. a, a lust for adventure and a lust for renown and action? And I think I think it's good to keep all of that in play as we continue to see Rail. For um, sure. And, and guess where this is all going. Because that was was a big mystery coming into this situation, you know, because Qui-Gon had been watching the security recordings of what happened on the ship. And, you know, the big question was, okay, this is his point of view, but when we get Rail's explanation, Rail's point of view, would there be a discrepancy there? You know, it, do we know the full truth? And right now it's seeming that Qui-Gon and his intuition as to what exactly happened on the advent it might be right. Um, but there is this interesting moment here where Qui-Gon starts to open up to Rail about how he feels like he's letting Obi-Wan down. And Qui-Gon says that he's trying to get Obi-Wan to think for himself, to relax. And Rail responds, interestingly, quote, while giving me hell for not towing the line, <laughs> Avarash shook his head. And granted, I, I don't think Rail is trying to be combative in that response, you know, mm. and they do move on in the conversation, but it's a pretty fair point where... Yeah. Maybe he and Qui-Gon aren't as different as Qui-Gon might think. What did you think about that? So, uh, gosh, it, it might be in the next chapter. I'll tread lightly for the moment. But there is this <laughs> idea that's floated by one of them in one of these two chapters that there's this pattern of like a strict master, a relaxed apprentice, yeah. a strict yeah. master, a relaxed apprentice, and back and forth. And they place themselves in that lineage. But I think there is something to the fact that they're a little closer than they would. What struck me most, though, I would say, is, is I felt really sad for Qui-Gon because he struck me as somebody looking for um, a connection and a relationship yeah. that the one he is allowed is the one with Obi-Wan and it's not working right. It's yeah. in trouble uh, as as the case may be. Yep. His Facebook <laughs> status is it's complicated. <laughs> uh, Jedi Facebook. Yeah. <laughs> Space Facebook. Uh, but uh, here he, I think it is exactly right. He's calling out Rail. He doesn't seem to really respect Rail all that much, but who else does he have? Yeah. I mean, the only other person he presumably had this connection with was Dooku, and there's obviously some baggage between them now, and yep. some reasons he can't go seeking advice. So, it reminds me, the real problem with the prequel Jedi, and I want to be clear that this is how George wrote it to be their problem, is that they've yeah. lost sight of the, the faith in the dogma of it all, right? So, I think yeah. there is a way in which this shows us again that the rot that we eventually come to find there is rooted in this fact that you have a lot of people who are lost and trying to do the best they can and just lack the connection that makes us human in quotes or a qualish yeah. or whatever uh but i think this is a sign of that that he would be a bit hypocritical and say hey guy i don't respect all that much because i just caught you with a, <laughs> an innkeeper you know how how can you help me how can i i do better and so i feel a little sad there and i guess the other candidate for this would be to go talk to yoda and clearly yoda is not yeah. a fan <laughs> uh, salty towards Qui yeah yeah so um yeah, it's it's a sad moment, I think, in a lot of ways. Yeah, kind of like the the sad reality of 
the state of the order, you know, on, on a very intimate level. I, I like that connection there, and that could probably be a whole other episode <laughs> talking about that in depth and, and just how that speaks to their gradual fall. But it doesn't seem like Qui-Gon can really find the outlet or find the connection in this conversation that he wants, where this is still in Rail's point of view, and Rail very much is kind of just trying to brush this away until he accidentally brings up Nim. And he this is accidentally because he's thinking to himself that he's been trying to avoid talking to Qui-Gon about this, and probably rightfully so, because we know exactly how Qui-Gon feels about this situation, especially in, re- in regards to how Rail handled it, and he thinks to himself that he's really only spoken to it about it with Fanry, but... There's this really a deep moment between them here, which I think is exactly what they need in this conversation, where Qui-Gon says, quote, You think that if you succeed with Fanery, it will make up for what happened to Nim. Nothing makes up for it. Avaros's voice had already grown hoarse. Nothing ever can, nothing ever could. But at least it won't make me feel like I'm poison to anybody I get close to. That made Qui-Gon grimace. I've been feeling as though I were not poison to Obi-Wan, but completely incapable of helping him. And this is a really deep emotional moment. Granted, they're each coming at this from different places, but I feel like this is what they've needed together, where Rail kind of opens up about it. You know, he's been meaning to avoid this conversation with Qui-Gon, but in this moment, he does remove the armor for just a bit. And especially from Qui-Gon's point of view, to kind of shift onto the same page where he's kind of been thinking that he and Rail are not what they used to be. And now it's showing that there is room for them to grow together in these kind of different yet shared, to some extent, experiences. I think it means a lot to Qui-Gon to hear that Rail is wounded by it, that it is a a sore spot. I think um, when he was reviewing the Hollows and thinking about the incident and the way he related it to Obi-Wan, it very much felt like, no, I'm pretty sure Rail's the bad guy here. And to see that it's his driving (laughs) motivation... I think is the first step to that connection. And it, then you're, what you just read, it is a connection there. This feeling that I am toxic to those around me and I put others at risk, I think is a very human moment for both of them and yeah. draws them closer, not into that real kind of intimate friendship again, but empathy, right? Like the, the recognition yeah. of that, that they're both going through something similar and they're doing the best they can despite those hard feelings. Yeah, which is any kind of small step in the direction of progress, I feel, is something, you know, because they're both very different personalities, especially in this time period. So this is this was, I think, important, especially, like you're saying, to Qui-Gon, but also, you know, maybe to, to Rail to not have that boiling up within <clears throat> him, you know, where he's only really talking to Fanery about it, but now to have the opportunity to open up even slightly to an old friend. It could mean a lot for both of them. And before we move on into the final scene of this chapter, you know, you had talked a bit about Rail and Qui-Gon's understanding of the code and how Rail was kind of throwing it back at Qui-Gon here, where Rail, on Qui-Gon's way out, he's trying to justify himself, you know, saying that I'm not the only Jedi (laughs) that has viewed celibacy as, you know, as as an ideal more than a rule. And Qui-Gon's response here is very interesting. He says, quote, I'm coming to believe that we must all interpret the code for ourselves, or it ceases to be a living pact and becomes nothing but a prison cell. I guess the philosophical implications of this are, are very deep. We don't really have the time to talk about that, but he kind of, in a, in a basic sense, he kind of has a point where for how we perceive the Jedi, especially in episodes one through three, it does seem to be like they're in this prison cell where they're kind of bound by their own perception of the code 
road where there's no flexibility, there's no freedom to move. And I was really impressed with Qui-Gon's response mm. here. I Yeah, that is actually the one quote I had also written down for this chapter, because it is really interesting in regards to the Qui-Gon we meet in Phantom Menace, because he does yeah. seem to be moving away from the Jedi Order. And there was this great moment in the Mandalorian gallery show where Filoni laid out how Duel of the Fates is about if Qui-Gon had yeah. lived. And I won't try to replicate that here, because it's just, it's <laughs> genius. You can try. You will try. <laughs> yes. Uh, but, um, but I think there's a little seed of that here, that Qui-Gon was moving on to a, an enlightened place. And the very start of mm. what you read is, I'm starting to believe, right? He's not there yet, but he's yeah. approaching it. Yeah. He's, he's reaching that it's maturity. There, and I will say the other place my mind goes is all the way at the other end of the Skywalker saga, the the last Jedi, um, that Luke is very, you know, he says to Rey to think that if the Jedi die, that the light side dies is vanity. And I think there's yeah. a seed of that here that we need to remember that the force is bigger than us and bigger than our rules. Yeah. And whatever we want to impose upon it, it's not going to necessarily listen. Exactly. And, and, you know, I'm not a, a religion scholar, but it very much reads to me like the people in my life who say, I'm not religious, but I have deep faith. Right. Like, I'm not going to mm. follow the rules. I'm not going to worship on the terms of an entity. I'm going to just worship and love my God or, or whatever, yeah. um, whatever deity uh, speaks to them. So I really like that spark that it suggests. And again, a great reason to turn not just a prequel to this book, but let's make a trilogy. Let's get a prequel and a sequel to Master and Apprentice. Exactly. And fill it all in. <laughs> Please. <laughs> I love that connection to Luke and the Last Jedi. And I love what you're saying that the Force is bigger than the code, but maybe not many Jedi are seeing it that way. I like how you're also pointing out that Qui-Gon is starting to. It's, he's not, like you're saying, he's not there yet, but progress where maybe a lot of Jedi might not even be looking at the mm -hmm. path. That's very, a very good point. And the chapter ends uh, on this really very dark, kind of terrifying note, especially when Qui-Gon is looking at Rayo and his reaction, where there's this scream from Fenry's room and they're all running to the scene and they show up and, and Qui-Gon's noting that Rayo is genuinely terrified for Fenry in the moment. And we can see how much she means to him and it's very much come true or at least come to light in our eyes where we can see, yes, that he is very afraid of failing again. And it seems like there was a close call here where um, I'm going to read this section from the book where Fanry's handmaiden or Fanry's servant is showing them what was lodged in the window. Quote, Katie held up a small device, silvery and pointed. Qui-Gon didn't recognize it at first, not until Rail sucked in a breath so sharply that he seemed to be in pain. A slicer dart, Qui-Gon murmured. Obi-Wan instantly looked at Rail. A tactless gesture, however understandable, but Rail was past noticing it. The man had gone so pale that he seemed to be in danger of falling over. And Qui-Gon comes to note that, you know, everyone's wondering, were they trying to kill Fanry? Were they trying to influence Katie, you know, with the nanotechnology to kill Fanry herself? But Qui-Gon's thinking to himself that this is an attack on Rail and his psyche here, where whoever did this, you know, the slicer dart is very, you know, that's kind of like the focal point of the tragedy of Nimpiana, of what happened with his former Padawan, where whoever did this knows exactly how to get to Rail. And Qui-Gon's thinking to himself, Quote, to give Rail notice that Princess Fenner was in danger and that he could no more protect her than he'd protected Nim all those years ago. And surely Rail knew it too. What an 
and yeah. a chilling end <laughs> to this chapter. Certainly, and in, just in a bit of a, a meta uh, reading of it, you know, it's then clear why why Claudia Gray needed to have Qui Gon and Rail together because Qui Gon should be the only one on that planet who knows the full details well enough. So the yeah. the mystery certainly deepens here and gets this more dangerous twist on it that this is now a, a personal attack and message. And and all I will add is when I read, like you're saying, you, you have to connect those two moments. That's what you're supposed to do. But it's also easy to uh, collapse the time between them where we're talking about a really mm. long time in which Rail has become quite attached to, to Fan Ray, right? Like yeah. she's he's been here, uh, essentially raised her uh, this this uh, long stretch of time. And so I think when he says his, his face grows pale and he feels like he could fall over. I think that is certainly the kind of attachment Jedi aren't supposed to have um, because yeah. he's raised her. It's it's essentially a daughter, I think. And, and it, it certainly uh, changes him yet again, maybe for like the third time in this chapter. It's like, I, sure. I like him more, I like him less, I like him more. But uh, this, this, I think, makes him a little more sympathetic. We're very much on a roller coaster with our <laughs> opinions towards Rail Avros. Didn't have a great start, but now we can't really help but feel sympathy for the man, especially knowing what, what he's come from and seeing it, you know, whoever did this is trying to play those games to make make him relive the same pain that he had to endure that sometimes you know Qui-Gon or others might not think that he actually you know felt guilt or 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 felt guilt about what happened but then you know this chapter Qui-Gon learns that yes he still lives with that pain and and now we can only imagine how much more amplified Mm. it is given what's now happened um and doesn't that just push to the failure of the code because they think it's suspicious that he doesn't feel those emotions yet he's not supposed to feel those emotions so so <laughs> yeah uh, so it, it definitely is um you know it's a reminder that that he is a human and and, and naturally yeah. connected with with uh both his padawan and the princess and and that's being manipulated here in a really disturbing way and a very disturbing end to the chapter. And also, there's not, <laughs> there's nothing wrong with Jedi being human. Yeah. <laughs> like I wish they, I wish they do that. But that closes out chapter fourteen. I can give my summary for fifteen, and we can keep rolling on. The Jedi conduct interviews with everyone in the palace in the early hours after the assassination attempt. The full fury of Rail is on display as he scrambles to understand how such a breach in security could have possibly happened. Minister Orth blames the root of these events on Rail, and the two proceed to angrily debate Pijal's future. Where Rail yearns for the progress and development that the Governance Treaty could yield, Minister Orth is insistent that the traditional absolute monarchy is what's best for Pijal. Afterward, Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan notice that despite the assassination attempt, everyone's anger seems to be directed at each other. Back in his quarters, Qui-Gon can't shake the prophecy of the Kyber that is not Kyber from his head, and he is forced to confront his obsession. The next morning, the opposition send a harmless but ominous message to Princess Fanry. Dealing with the aftermath of kind of the, the horrifying scene to end the last chapter, you know, we're thrown right into, you know, what proceeds to unfold with the interviews with kind of like the the who done it is now amplified even more. Do you have any general thoughts on chapter 15 before we dive in? Um 
Yeah, I think aftermath is the right word for it. We got the opening scene <laughs> where the jogger found the body um, from Law and Order. And now we're doing the first <laughs> half hour interviews to try to figure out what's happened. I think what stood out to me most as I read across this chapter is we're back with Qui-Gon and, and in his head and it really becomes clear across the chapter how overwhelmed he is. So uh, to repeat, yeah. your focus determines your reality. He has no focus in this chapter, and yeah. he's, he says as much uh, to us or, or to himself. And so I think that really defines how messy this is all getting. Um, and um, yeah. I'll leave you there. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a very good good way to put it, especially with kind of his internal thoughts later when he's alone in his quarters and also dealing with really thinking about everything that has happened as well as the prophecy reminding him, hey, I'm still yeah. here. But yeah, we're uh, kind of in, in the thick of these interviews. You know, Qui-Gon, he, he's not really able to read emotions in the Force as well as other Jedi are, but he can just sense from the body language of Captain Darren. Uh, Princess Fenry's captain of the guard that this man is humiliated he's he's ashamed of what happened you know Fenry is his charge to protect and whoever did this was able to get so close to just lodge something in the window you know Princess Fenry said that she saw someone in her window so clearly there's a massive breach in security that needs to be answered here and I just had a thought here that Darren is saying that he himself made a sweep of Fanry's room, that his uh, astromech droid cycled through all the data, that he double-checked those findings, and you know I'm here trying to figure out who could have done this. It seems like Darren has a lot of access to security, to the data and knowledge of the sentry shifts and, and security recordings. Qui-Gon hasn't ruled this guy out, despite his devotion to Fanry, and I'm just keeping that in mind here that, you know, he's he's outwardly ashamed and humiliated, but is he hiding something? I don't know. I'm just, I'm not ruling anyone out. <laughs> and the, that, that comes up as a part of a conversation that reveals how many factions exist within the court, right? That there yeah. is a yeah. lot of uh, unrest here and, and this kind of bureaucratic strife that defines so much of the prequel era um, exists on this planet. And that, you know, yeah. I think that naturally makes me start to question him, um, even Katie, who, you know, seems innocent, yeah. but was, hey, in the room in the stories from her. So in the room. Yeah. Right <laughs> so, um, yeah, yeah. And, and I think especially with this tantalizing hint that it's somebody who has to know rail really well. Exactly. And we don't know a lot about his life on, on the planet, but it seems like it's mostly the people in this room who'd be able to, to get to him in this way. Yeah, for sure. And, and, you know, he is not happy no. <laughs> with Darren and he's not ruling anyone out. And uh, I just want to read this, this quote from rail where he's saying, quote, some of you kept telling me that this Halen person wasn't so bad, that the serious attacks maybe got out of hand. But now they've shown their hand. They're assassins, they're murderers, and they're after Fanry, so I don't ever want to see a security slip-up again. Got it? And we came into Pajal with everyone kind of... They were starting to become a little bit more wary of the opposition. There had been no serious threats against Fanry's life until really this moment. And it had kind of maybe been taken for granted that the opposition is really in character for them to kill anyone or try to. But here we see, especially from Rail and how angry he is, what he's saying here, the mood has shifted entirely. And that everyone senses it too, that, that Rail might be facing another situation here where the young girl under his protection is threatened. And it seems like at all costs, he does not want to repeat that. And it's just... To see this kind of heated emotion from Rail, we've seen him very lax, mm -hmm. very easygoing, kind of carefree, but now when Fanry is in danger, this is when 
maybe you know game time rail yeah. is appearing uh, it's very very interesting to see kind of the shift in mood entirely lord regent uh rail right remind yeah, remind really. <laughs> what he's supposed to be yeah yeah what what his duty is here within that and it is especially i mean you can imagine if he'd still been in bed with selby would she be slinking out like as like if the night had gone his way uh that he would shift mode so quickly but i do think you know as this all starts to kind of swirl and everything becomes more complicated um the opposition is definitely um a part of that. And I think there's, yeah. you know, I, another uh, myth that I love to swat down on Twitter is Star Wars is not political, uh, right? It's oh. been political <laughs> since the beginning and it should be. Um, but I do oh, think you see gosh. a lot of resonances with our real world, right? Like um, yeah. we will, a, a lot of people will, will appreciate a movement and its values until something violent happens. And so I think that's this moment on this planet, right? That, okay, now that there's been a real violent uh, incident and an attempted assassination, um, I think instantly whoever might have had sympathies were, were headed in a different direction now. And it's going to get much uh, scarier, I think, um, because they are scared. Yeah, it, really, there's there's fear of of the unknown. You know, we were talking about that earlier. Yeah. And now it's like we don't know who did this, how they got there. There's very much this cloud of the unknown and, and tensions are, are raised. They're only going to continue soaring. Uh, and things only get more heated between um, Rail and Minister Orth. I know my, my previous guest had kind of shipped them where it's like there's a lot of tension between them and are they like are they secretly into each other and i've kind of dubbed them as orthoros kind of like my new ship name for them nice. um get those t-shirts out bl- <laughs> yeah right and they got, gotta get the merch <laughs> um and things are getting pretty heated between them and i just thought it was very interesting to you know how they kind of shift the conversation to their very polarized, starkly contrasted views on, on the future of Pijal, mm. the direction of Pijal, where I thought it was very interesting that Orth is, is you know, she does not like Zerka. She thinks that Rail is trying to, you know, give them more opportunities to be more at home on their planet. And it's a very interesting dynamic between Pijal and Zerka. You know, they have a lot of influence there, a lot of history there. And Orth is seeing the answer as this absolute monarchy, mm-hmm. that the people need a true, quote unquote, leader, and that this treaty that Rail's trying to push is the cause of all of this. And I don't know. I just I thought it was very interesting to hear someone actually advocating for no th- this democracy that you're trying to trying to create is not going to work. You know we need an absolute monarch, and you know Qui Gon chips in. He tries to speak on the behalf of you know what the Galactic Senate is, and you know, he's trying to say that oh they, you know they can get things done. And Orth kind of responds with a very clever uh, quote: "Tell that to the Galactic Senate, unless they're too busy posing for their re-election hollows." <laughs> and you know, Qui Gon knows she has a point. We're very familiar with that reality too. You know, I, I hate to concede to Orthier on the on the argument of absolute monarchy, uh, but it was just a very kind of almost like a meta moment from Claudia here, where she's like, "See, you know, see, you know, <laughs> democracy is good, but also running for re-election all that." It's just I thought that was a very yeah. uh, kind of like a funny break in the. Fourth wall almost, but it's just a very in- interesting interaction between Rail and Orth here, and just their different views on the future of Pichel. Yeah, and uh, I think absolutely a, a resonance with the real world and how we all feel. Um, even the politicians <laughs> we like, we don't like when they are running for re-election. Right. Uh, but um, it also, to me, the way you were just describing it, it takes me to that valley on Naboo where Anakin says, well, you know, if they don't agree, then somebody should make them agree. Um, it's, you know, we, we love that line because it's him, you know, hinting at his future role without knowing 
it. Yeah. Um, but it is absolutely kind of <laughs> like that is the beauty of of a monarchy is that it's one person's decision and and there's no messiness there. Um, and then the other resonance is uh, Claudia Gray working in Bloodlines because um, the mm. faction in that or, or the factions in that book are very much about centrist and a, a strong united government True. versus um independent planets um kind of wielding more power and i think you know i i i can't even remember i guess that would have been she wrote that one just before this one i believe i think is right or something so. like that so it, it's almost like we're seeing it now when the democracy was working how it was supposed to and failed and so then at the other end it's people saying like do we really want to go back to that it it was kind of nice being yeah. told what to do even if we didn't like all the things but it is it, it and it's you know for everybody who says this is a silly fake space fantasy thing this is pretty heavy theory and you yeah. know uh, yeah. some real uh kind of meat to chew on um and to think about what the kind of different politics and structures really mean for sure you know and at the end of the day orth and Avaros, Orthros, they have Pijal's best interests at heart, mm -hmm. or so it seems, at least outwardly. You know, we can assume, we can think that they're both coming from a good place with their intentions for the planet. They just, they see it very differently, yep. uh, which is a theme throughout Star Wars. And I love that connection to, to Bloodline, uh, where it's kind of a, a running theme throughout the Star Wars universe. And after the meeting, Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan are kind of debriefing, and they're, they're noting how you know, the princess almost got killed, but everyone, you know, the real anger is between each other where everyone's yelling at each other you know and maybe not as much progress to find who actually did this is being made i was thinking how masterful a strategy would that be if the opposition are trying to destabilize pijal to bring the government down from within you know the loss of life isn't really necessary just these threats and the mystery of the unknown to create this tension and it's not looking good where everyone's this infighting all whoever is behind this has to do is just to sit back and watch it all unfold. It's really a brilliant point from Obi-Wan noticing that. And you know, he's, he's right. Yeah. And I mean, that's what terrorism is supposed to do, right? Um, yeah. is, it's supposed to instill fear and to make you question everything that led you to that moment. And um, I think this has been played really well for that. And, and it's, a, it's certainly a credit to Claudia Gray. Um, that she she made that so clearly an analog to our world without you know really hanging a hat on it and say like well and, yeah and there are these two <laughs> buildings that got knocked over or whatever so um so to to really show us that that's what um is happening here I think it works yeah. works exceedingly well and it's so powerful that it not only unbalances the ruling council um but it it unbalances Qui-Gon even further and yep. he he leaves this interaction and goes to try to meditate and it's just it's clear the storm has infected him and no single piece of this puzzle can get the attention it would take to solve it because he's he's lost and enmeshed in this in this chaos that has come um yeah and uh yeah, that that moment where he tries to meditate reminds me of uh, a classic Simpsons that actually gets brought up in terms <laughs> of the president a lot, which is Mr. Burns has so many diseases that the, the diseases can't fit into his body at the same time. <laughs> um, and this often gets brought up with the president and his controversies. But it feels that way. Like there's so much demanding Qui-Gon's yeah. attention that they're all stuck in the door and he can't get any real traction here. And um, Exactly. Yeah. 
<laughs> he can't even, it's so fascinating in this last section of this chapter where he can't even really find the, the energy to think about the events that have unfolded because there's this creeping voice, you know, at the door, this knock at the door from this Kyber that is not Kyber prophecy, where we start to really come to understand his obsession with these prophecies where everything that's happened with the council, with Obi-Wan, with this assassination attempt, it's so much that's, you know, you're, like you're saying, he can't find this traction and the fact that he could be in the middle of this prophecy is just making things harder. Let's talk about this kind of his inner thoughts here where he's really coming to terms with how he hasn't really been as honest with Obi-Wan about how he views prophecies, where he kind of told Obi-Wan in passing it was that it was just intellectual curiosity. And, you know, we have this quote from his thoughts, quote, he hadn't been honest with Obi-Wan primarily because he hadn't been honest with himself. And I'm thinking maybe this is like a point of self discovery maybe of growth for Qui-Gon where he's realizing just how influential these prophecies can have on him even after all that's happened on Pejal that the Kyber prophecy is still trying to push its way to the forefront and he even personally refers to it and his relationship with these prophecies as quote zealotry mm. where we're really coming to understand the nature of his relationship with how you know his attitude towards these prophecies it's very interesting to see him kind of grapple with you know given everything he's still having trouble focusing with a, a lot of reason because there's this looming threat of this this prophecy around him that he just doesn't know there's so much unknown for Qui-Gon to handle we feel bad for him and it's also just a very fascinating internal moment of conflict mm, I think that's all dead on and there's always this lingering thing. When we meet Qui-Gon in Phantom Menace, he's guided by the prophecy and makes the biggest, yep. most faithful fateful choice in the, the saga, really, by following a prophecy. Yep. Um, so there's a, a sense of this as it's almost like, you know, a kind of cheesy prequel. I'm thinking like the beginning of um, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, where it's like he just happens to find a whip and a hat. And, you know, and, and so it's almost like a Qui-Gon moment like that where he's kind of leaning into the prophecy or as you said it's allowing himself to recognize that he's already there and that yeah. this has been uh, what has been motivating him i think in in the other way it dominates his thoughts it's because this is a way to recognize that you're part of a bigger system yeah. and i think that takes away some of the agency and you can excuse your your own poor choices because if it's all part of a preordained philosophy or sorry prophecy mm. then you whatever choices you make would have always brought you here um and yeah. i think he in some ways does believe in the prophecies but it also becomes a convenient belief to say like well then it's mm. okay i've been kind of a dick to obi-wan <laughs> or whatever the the thing is so it suits rail pretty well <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> it's like oh, i can do whatever um but <laughs> And uh, the chapter ends up closing. Qui-Gon's on this balcony trying to meditate, and he notices there's kind of like these floating platforms down on the sea because of this beautiful balcony. I'm looking out at the seaside. I, I love the aesthetic of Pijal. And he's noticing uh, and, and listening to these singers, this chorus of singers on these floating platforms on the water, singing up to Princess Fannery. She's out on her balcony. She has like a, an energy shield around her to, you know, obviously prevent any kind of attack against her. And then he notices kind of like this black sphere rise from the water up to her platform and he's ready to intervene. He specifically says that he's ready to jump down into the water to save anyone who might be, who might fall off the platforms because this thing kind of comes out from, you know, near them. Uh, so very 
subtle, brave moment from Qui-Gon there, but this spherical object, he realizes it's, it's, it's a balloon, which is uh, kind of funny, and, and uh, the black covering kind of uh, poofs off, and there's this message in red on the balloon that says, quote, end tyranny, end Zerka, and that's it. You know, nothing else happens. It's just this harmless balloon. Very much, you know, kind of w- when they were introduced to the opposition, when they were hearing the information on it, it's like these harmless political moves, these stunts. And it seems to be another one of those. But he's thinking to himself, it's a very awkward shift from hours ago. They went from an assassination attempt to now just a harmless balloon <laughs> with a message. It's It is seems like a very awkward interesting shift uh, and and that's how the chapter ends kind of like this harmless message when the, when it's talking about ending zerka i was like we already heard about someone talk about wanting to end zerka on pajal minister orth i'm looking at you um <laughs> so i don't know just please try to figure out who could be connected it, it seems a very harmless yet ominous message to end the chapter and and that's how chapter 15 ends yeah it, i i think it also then shows just as he couldn't he can no longer think of the ruling council as a unified whole he now knows he can't think of the opposition that way that there seems even that like big Great villain point. is falling into factions or, or falling to pieces where there there seem to be different elements because it, it's exactly yeah. right you would spend the exact same amount of effort to try to assassinate the princess and to float a giant balloon with a message on it <laughs> um i i don't know that if claudia gray has any connection up here to the boston area but there's a very famous um prank in uh, the history of cambridge so harvard and yale which i have no affiliation with but they <laughs> dominate everything if you live in cambridge like i used to um there's a very famous football game they always did pranks on each other and this one football game i think a piece of the field opened up and this big balloon rose out and everybody was like oh my god what's happening it's terrifying and it was mit the the nerds over at the computer school who floated a balloon that said mit and kind of uh, had this famous moment um i believe that's the history of it uh forgive me if i'm wrong so it, it it also resonated with me that like you know but that's the thing it's it's big and it's harmless and everybody can laugh it off and say you got yeah. us this time because there's no real danger um, and how opposed to the to the version of this organization we've gotten in the last yeah. few pages has been. So <laughs> <laughs> the opposition is MIT. We now have the yep, answer. There it is. <laughs> <laughs> but I like that point about how maybe just as the courts are are split and divided, maybe there's you know we're getting mixed messages from the opposition, and so maybe there's some divide there. That's a very very keen point. I, I hadn't thought about that. That's very interesting. Um, and there's this brief flashback scene to close out this episode starts with young gan doing his homework in the main room of dooku's jedi knight quarters and you know he's he's doing his homework while munching on leftovers and i was like this is relatable like i remember doing the exact same thing whatever was in the dining hall take it home yep (laughs) some mozzarella sticks and he's just working away um the, the Padawan 15, is that a thing? I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> it's got to yeah. be. It's gotta... <laughs> uh, <laughs> and Rail walks in and Qui-Gon, quote, didn't hug Rail, but wished he could. And there's that little, that little poke at how close they were, that emphasis that Claudia keeps throwing in these flashbacks of the friendship that they used to have and how Qui-Gon very much used to look up to Rail. And we're just left again knowing how much that has changed. But I guess the main point of this 
flashback was, you know, Rail taking Qui-Gon to the archives. You know, Qui-Gon's trying to find a, a topic for his research paper. Very relatable. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> um, and he shows him this, uh, something that Qui-Gon had seen in the archives before, but never really had the chance to look in depth at. But this, it's this holocron of ancient prophecies. And he mentioned to Rail that Dooku had told him that he shouldn't really pay much attention to them. But then Rail is here trying to get him to, to do his research report on them. And it's confused Rail because it was Dooku who got Rail into prophecy. So we have to wonder why Dooku has that shift in tone. But I just have this quote from when Yungan is his reaction to sifting through this holocron. And it says, quote, right now his head buzzed with all the prophecy he'd read, all the possibilities of the future they hinted at. The entire universe seemed to have grown larger in an instant, full of incredible possibilities. I was getting some like Harry Potter mirror, mirror of Arisad vibes where it's like, oh, like, you know, he's just enthralled with this now and just the possibilities are endless. We kind of see the, the seeds here being planted of his obsession, of his zealotry, as he had uh, worded it himself, being planted. And you know, what, what were your thoughts on, on this? I know there, there are a few prophecies written down here, if you want to talk about one of those. Oh, but yeah, what are your thoughts on this on this scene? Yeah, actually, it was funny because I you mentioned the Mirror of Erised, but I was into uh, book five, right? I was thinking about the Hall of Prophecies and some of those oh. messages as well. Uh, yeah, well, I missed that. <laughs> But um, yeah, I think, again, it's, it is almost like a moment where you realize we know that this will be a defining trait in Qui-Gon. And so to see this moment and to understand what it might have sparked in him, um, you know, the, the dynamic you mentioned that he he won't hug rail. It was very 2020, right? It was like, uh, no, uh, uh, <laughs> six feet. <laughs> but it is like, OK, now it's the cool upperclassman who came back and is giving you the inside mm. track. And um, he knows he knows the professor, right? He knows he knows Dooku and knows, uh, you know, what's being taught um, and, and gives him this hint. So it, it felt very much like all of that, like very familiar. And yet the language of the prophecies uh, reads so much like a Nostradamus or or something mm. otherworldly. And um, I, it's it's so, so well done that every time they come up, I can make myself apply all my knowledge of Star Wars and figure out what they mean and then change my mind completely, right? Like yeah. the Kyber <laughs> that's not a Kyber has to be the Death Star. And then it's like, well, but no, it doesn't it doesn't really sound like it could be. So um and so, you know, the momentous one here about um the the chosen one is obviously the one that yeah. that matters the most. Um but I can't even piece it all together myself i don't i i, I can't figure it out yeah i mean it, there's some really interesting ones and i think again like we're not there's no way for us to mm. there there's just infinite possibilities like qui-gon like young gun is thinking to himself and i think it's just you know kind of like a playful playful from claudia to kind of dangle these in front of us and know that we'll probably spend more hours trying to figure them out than we'll ever, you know, spend actually understanding them and it's just uh the possibilities are endless and a very interesting way for this uh, uh for the flashback to end with Qui-Gon being introduced to these prophecies and there is the chosen one uh thrown in there so we see how he first learned about that so uh, <laughs> but that is how the flashback ends that is how this episode ends Greg, do you have any closing thoughts before we wrap up today? First, thank you. This was awesome. I have not gotten to yeah. nerd out this much in a long time, and I'm, I'm glad for it. Um, I'm going to 
be such a big jerk right now. Um, and I just want to, my last thought is um, the book I read before starting this one was Claudia Gray's High Republic novel. Um, I got an uh, advanced copy of... <laughs> I saw um, that on Twitter. Yes. Uh, so it comes out in February, but I, I will just say a tantalizing fact about it. Um, it is... Oh, Absolutely get your pre-orders in, first and foremost, if, if anybody yeah. hasn't. Um, but the moment you referenced earlier where you said Qui-Gon wasn't as adept at reading emotions in other people. Mm -hmm. um, and this idea that Jedi have specializations. Yeah. They're not ex as extreme as like the X-Men, but they all do have their own ways. <laughs> um, is something that I think is going to be very much in play in the High Republic uh, books. So You think or no. <laughs> I, I think or no. I, I will say I have not read the Charles Sewell. I only had the, the mm. middle grade uh, Justina Ireland book and then Claudia Gray's sure. YA book. I really want the Charles Sewell book, but it's it's only like a couple weeks now, and and so yeah, on. really but, only. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, I won't. I I will let, leave it for people to discover. But I would say if you are loving this book as you're listening to this podcast, um, get that pre order in because it is very much a spiritual sibling of of this book in particular. Yeah. I'm looking forward to diving into that new era of the Star Wars literature. You got me excited now. I envy you for having those copies. I, I got to pre-order myself. Um, <laughs> Christmas shopping. It takes it takes it. Um, but, but thank you so much for coming on the show, Greg. This was a really great conversation, and just being able to geek out over Master and Apprentice and Star Wars. And I, I love what you brought to the table in this episode. If the listeners wanted to find you on the internet, and uh, where could they do so? Uh, so the easiest way to find me is on Twitter uh, at Ion Cannon, E-Y-E uh, O-N-C-A-N-O-N, -O -N, a, a pun uh, in itself. Um, <laughs> and I kind of run everything out of there. So it links to my other stuff, but I, I run an Instagram under the same name. That's just my collection. And I have, I specialize in Kenobis. So I often share a bunch of Kenobi mm. stuff. <laughs> um, and then uh, I... Also, my pinned tweet you'll find there is I did um, for Star Wars Day this year, I celebrated by doing a YouTube video for the first time ever. Uh, I called it Blackboard Star Wars, and I was set up at home to lecture for my classes that I teach. Um, and so I just left the camera up and did a quick lecture on Joseph Campbell and um, some ways to apply him a little better than I hear your average Star Wars uh, fan <laughs> apply it uh, to try to give a little more theory to people to help with their speculation. So um, it's a it's a fun watch. I'm not planning to do a, a series or become a YouTube star, but no. <laughs> it was kind of a one-off. But um, if, if the mood strikes me again someday, I might try another. But uh, it's it's a lot of fun, I think, to, to watch. Yeah, the seeds are planted. Just as Qui-Gon seeds with the prophecies here is planted, <laughs> you've got the YouTube star seeds. They're, they're planted. They're there. They just need some cultivated. <laughs> <laughs> Locked in all the account names. So if I ever get laid off that's what i'll become is just a youtuber <laughs> <laughs> i hope that won't be the case <laughs> but thank you so much for coming on the show greg and listeners i will post a link to greg's social media in the episode description really great account and uh, I don't think you'll be disappointed at all. It's been awesome having you on the show. Thank you so much. And before we close up today, I'll give our discussion question for these chapters. Based on Qui-Gon and Rail's discussion, do you agree with Qui-Gon that the Jedi Code should be open to interpretation by each Jedi? Or would you agree with an Obi-Wan figure who believes the Code to establish a specific sense of order and direction that all Jedi must adhere to? 
And listeners, I will post the question to Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Please send us a response on any of those platforms or by email to OuterRimReadsPod at gmail.com. And thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to follow Outer Rim Reads on social media to stay up to date on the show and our discussion questions, feel free to give us a follow on Twitter at OuterRimReadPod and on Facebook and Instagram at OuterRimReadsPod. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so if you head over to patreon.com slash outerrimreads. And if you want some merch, you can also find us on teespring.com. Outer Rim Reads is created by Andrew Gayha, is hosted by Andrew Gayha, is produced by Andrew Gayha, and it is edited by Connor Floyd. We'll be back in two weeks with episode 28. So until then, sit back and enjoy. Young Gun over there has been working on his leftovers and homework for a bit. Go treat him to a cup of Jawa juice. I hear he loves talking about prophecies.